the priestly line now chosen through the chosen one. Adorned with strands and stones woven and wound, pointing to the God who never forgets those who are his. And step after step, turn by turn, being led and directed with heart surrendered, we discern what we should do. Lord, what should we do? These everyday reminders of our fractured fellowship with the Father, needing gift after gift to wipe the slate clean, just enough for good enough. But the cycle would be broken through the final solution for sin, the offering himself, offering rescue and freedom and hope and life, life and more life. The team has done a great job with these video bumpers, uh, this series. I appreciate all their good work in that. Happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, who are here. As I was thinking about being a dad, you know, there's a lot of good things that dads do, and then there are some, well, there's some things that dads do that end up being a big mess. And part of that comes from just being a man, a male in general. Uh, we have a tendency to want to prove our machismo, and one of the ways we do that is by proving that we can handle just about everything. But the truth is, there are some things that we are good at fixing, and there are some things that we are not so good at fixing, because that's one of the ways we try to prove that we're a guy. You know, I can, I can fix anything, you know, mechanical or whatever it is, I can do it. Uh, unfortunately, I fit into the not good at it side of things, and I'm just curious so I don't feel totally alone. How many of you men would say, yep, I'm not good at fixing things either? All right, so we have some vulnerable, honest men here. I really appreciate that. Hopefully that's not to get out of work, but um, I have proven I'm not good at it. And uh, my most recent uh, big mess uh, happened uh, late last year. We had a problem under our kitchen sink, and I thought I could fix it. And I just thought, why call somebody and pay extra money for that? I'll do this and I'll impress my wife and then I'll be able to tell everybody I fixed the, the plumbing out of the kitchen sink. So I did what I thought was right, thought I'd fixed it. And Marcia and I actually went out for dinner. And a couple hours later I came home and I'll spare you all the details except to say it's never a good thing when you open the door to your house and you hear Niagara Falls. And that's basically what was happening. It was just pouring out uh, from under the sink. Sink. Our kitchen was flooded. Part of our basement was flooded. And it was a horrendous mess for the next several months. The, you know, both sections were torn up. And I would, I would stand there every day for like two months. I would stand there every day and be reminded of the mess that I had made. Every day I would stand there and I would fantasize, what if I would have just called somebody? I would be standing in this kitchen and using my basement and there'd be no problems. What if? And every day as I saw what was going on, I realized that this was going to cost me a whole lot more money than I would have paid if I had somebody come in and fix it. Sometimes it is a curse to be Dutch. How about you? 
Have you ever made a mess, whether you're a male or a female? Have you ever made a mess that you wish you could undo? That you regret, that you wish you could fix? There's something in us as human beings that we have this desire to go back and want to redo things, have do-overs, if it were possible. It's interesting how it leads to all kinds of phenomena in the culture, this compelling desire in our lives. While I was doing my research, I came across an article about a... Uh, fad that's been going on for the last dozen years. I have to admit, I hadn't really heard about it until I read about it, then did some more investigating. It's called, it's called secondary virginity or re-virginization. And it has to do with couples who have been sexually active and they get into their engagement period and they decide for three or let's say six months to stop all sexual activity so that as they come up to the, the wedding day, there's that sense of, you know, we've, we've never done this before. There's that sense of the thrill and the excitement that our wedding night, it'll be like the, the first time. And a writer by the name of Colin Murphy of the Atlantic Monthly calls this a, uh, a trend. He says, I see this trend as a powerful reassertion American optimism. I think that was meant in tongue-in-cheek. And then he wrote these words, quote, We want to believe that what is done is not always done. <clears throat> that the broken can be fixed, the ravaged restored, that you can have another swing, can wipe the slate clean, and can go back to square one. Somebody else commented, We ache to become pure again. Doesn't have anything to do with religion. All around the world, whether you're an atheist or you are practicing some other kind of religion, there is this, there's this sense in all of us, this ache that I think goes all the way back to creation, this ache to recover some sense of purity. And like I said, it plays itself out in lots of ways. Have you ever thought about this? It's like when you took or when you take or when your kids take their college entrance exams, right? SAT, ACT, or whatever they do. Their goal is to meet a certain score because they believe if I get that score, I'll get into that particular college or university. And so you can take it as many times as you want to try to get that score to where you, 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 know, you feel like I'll, I'll get in so you can redo, redo, redo. And how many of us have been subjected to commercials, advertisements by marketers telling us that if we buy this certain product, this cream, or if we take these pills, it'll not only make us look younger, it'll make us feel younger. I won't ask you how many you've bought, but anyway. Or surgeons that tell us that if we'll come and have the surgery that they're experts at, they'll make us look half our age. And there's just something in all of us that's intrigued by the pills, the creams, the surgeries, the whatever it is, because we'd all like to kind of go back and, and relive again. We'd like to all go back and redo again. 
What is it you wish you could go back and relive and redo or undo? Maybe some words. Words that you said that now you look back and you go, man, I wish I had never said those words. The damage it has caused, the pain it's caused me. Oh, I wish I could go back and take those words and have said something else. Or maybe it's an action. Maybe it's something you did. You think to yourself, boy, I just wish I had never done that. The consequences I'm paying now for what I did. Man, I wish I could go and undo that. Or maybe, maybe it's a sin. Maybe nobody knows about it. It's a sin from your past, but it's something you live with. It's a regret. It's a guilt. It's a shame that you have. And you wish you could go back and unsin if it were possible. Is it possible to re-virginize, so to speak? Is it possible to go back and recover something of, of purity? And the answer to the question is, yes, in many ways it is. At least in relationship with God. And strangely enough, it's the tabernacle that we go for our answer of how to discover this. Except I want to think of not just the tabernacle, but also the temple, because the temple is the permanent form of the tabernacle, which was meant to be transported where Israel went until they came in the promised land, and the temple was built. And as we do this, we're going to look at three Hebrew words. Now, before I tell you about those words, I want to give credit to where credit is due, to a, a Messianic rabbi by the name of uh, Jonathan Kahn. I don't agree with everything Jonathan writes, but... He brings out some things that I would not have seen as a Gentile and as, as a Christ believer especially. It was so eye-opening to me. I want to pass on these things to you as well as other things that I studied. And, and I just really believe it's going to bless your life. So we're going to look at three Hebrew terms. I've also been doing a lot of reading in the Psalms lately in my quiet time. And I've noticed that in the Psalms, there's a lot of response back to God in the Psalms. There's a lot of shouting to God in a good way, in a praiseworthy way. And I... And I know we're Baptists, I know we're Minnesotans, so we have two strikes against us when it comes to being expressive in worship. But I thought to myself, we could try it today, and we could do one simple phrase, praise God. I'll ask you to do it at a few points in the message, because I think you're going to want to praise God after I get done telling you the good news I have today. So let's practice it once, praise God. Ready? Praise God. Ah, excellent. Good, good job. So the first word that we're going to learn, the first Hebrew word, is the word tamid. So let's all say it together. Tamid. One more time. Tamid. Very good, very good. You all get an A in Hebrew, 101. Well, what does tamid mean? To answer that question, turn with me to Exodus chapter 29. The scene of the tabernacle will also think in terms of the temple because all this gets transferred to the temple as well. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 29, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 38 while you're doing that. It says in verse 38, these are the sacrifices you are to offer regularly on the altar. Each day, offer two lambs that are a year old, one in the morning and the other in the evening. With one of them, offer two quarts of choice flour mixed with one quart of pure oil of pressed olives. Also offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. Offer the other lamb in the evening along with the same offerings of flour and wine as in the morning. It will be a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. These burnt offerings are to be made each day from generation to generation. That's called the tamid. 
to, to me refers to those, to that specific offering, the offering of the two lambs, one in the morning and one at night. Now, this is the way that it worked. At the third hour, which was 9 a.m., and we're thinking of the temple now, the priest would kill the lamb, sacrifice it, and offer it on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. At the same time that that lamb is killed and offered, the trumpets blare and the gates open up to the temple precincts and people start streaming in with all of their offerings and all of their sacrifices. Then, at the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he would take a second lamb and he would sacrifice that lamb. And when that lamb was sacrificed on the altar, it brought to a halt all of the offerings and all the sacrifices. So for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., people are making offerings and sacrifices. But at the second offering, the evening offering, as it was called, everything is done. Everything is done. And by the way, it was a, it was a bloody affair. So you can imagine all the cleanup that has to be done. And this is done every day, day after day after day after day, year after year, on and on perpetually, generation to generation, it says. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? What does Tamid have to do with you and me? Well, everything that God does has meaning. And those lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament point forward to another lamb that's about to be sacrificed. It is God's lamb that he brings to Jerusalem to sacrifice. And so on your own, I hope you read Mark 15, it's entirely later on, but let me draw your attention to a couple of verses. Mark chapter 15, and the first verse I want us to look at is verse 25. It says, it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. It's talking about Jesus. So think about this with me for a moment. At 9 a.m. in Jerusalem, a lamb is being put on the altar as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The trumpets are blurring, the doors are open. But outside of the city gates, the Lamb of God is being stretched out on a cross and hoisted up to be crucified for the sins of the world. For six hours, Jesus hangs on the cross while in Jerusalem for six hours, all kinds of offerings and all kinds of sacrifices are being made. It's as though his time on the cross is meant to cover every, every offering and every sacrifice demanded by the law. It's like he's fulfilling them all as he hangs there. As the second evening lamb is being offered in Jerusalem, we learn that this takes place on the cross in verse 34, it says that at 3 o'clock, same time as the lamb in Jerusalem is being offered, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. So as the second lamb dies, the Lamb of God dies for you and for me. So no other sacrifice or offering ever has to be made again. Because he completes them all. And this word tamid, 
it not only refers to that specific sacrifice that was made of those two lambs, but it also means perpetual or always. That's why it says generation, generation. So the sacrifice of Jesus is a perpetual sacrifice. That is, it perpetually and always covers our sins. That deserves a praise God. Ready? Praise God. Do you get that? Perpetually, always, and forever. Your sins and my sins are covered by the grace of God. You know, we live in a bad news world. <laughs> so much bad news. Every time you turn the TV on, look at the news. It's bad, bad, bad. Bad is this good news. It's really good news. But I know that there are probably some of us who hear that and you feel a little bit like me that day, those days in the kitchen. When I just looked around, I thought to myself, man, I created some messes. This is a really big mess. And sometimes we look at our lives and we just say, what a mess. What a really big mess I've made. Maybe if you don't understand that, you know somebody that's experienced that. They just look at their life and they just go, this is cataclysmic. I don't, I don't even think God can clean this mess up. I don't think God can forgive me for this. I've just, I've just been bad. Or I've just done the same thing for the 45th time. God must just be sick and tired of me. You know, uh, the enemy loves to accuse us of our wrongs and our sins. He does that all the time. Even though he doesn't have a right to, he loves to do it. Because he knows how gullible and vulnerable we are and how we'll actually come to believe that. He loves to accuse us. He loves to tie us up in these cords of accusations to the point that he loves to get us to that place where we actually believe all those things about ourselves. We believe those negative things. We begin to actually make our identity our sin or our sin, our identity. And if the enemy doesn't do that by just speaking to our minds, he certainly speaks to other people. You know, some people just have this gift, don't they, of going around and reminding you of what you've done wrong. And pointing out what's wrong with you and pointing out that sin. And then there's our own consciousness that's plagued, you know, that will plague us sometimes with what we said or what we did, and so we go through life, we think of ourselves as the adulterer, the adulteress, the fornicator. We think of ourselves as the liar, the loser, the, the addict, the drunk, the disappointment, the failure, the whatever it is. Kind of live with that, and that becomes our identity, and that's, that's what takes us to the second word, which is a powerful word. It is the word kata. And you got to say it like you got something in the back of your throat. So it goes kata. So let's try it together. Ready? Kata. That's kind of fun. Let's do it again. Kata. Kata in the Old Testament is a general term for sin. Paul uses a different Greek term for the same word. Just sin in, in general. But there's also something unique about kata. To understand, you've got to go back to the Day of Atonement. We already talked about that, so I won't go over it again. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest takes two goats. Not two lambs, but two goats. 
And he, sat, and he takes one of them and he sacrifices it, remember? And he takes the blood from it and he goes into the Holy of Holies. He sprinkles it on the east side of the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat. And that makes atonement for the sins of the nation. And then he takes a second goat. Remember what he does? He places his hand on the second goat. And he confesses over it the sins of the nation. And then that goat is taken and it's led out by somebody into the wilderness with, with the idea that it's taking away the sins of the nation of Israel. And they do that every year, year after year. It never stops. Well, all of that is a picture of Jesus. Because, for instance, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Finish it with me, please. For he will save his people from their sins. And then John chapter 1, verse 29. Would you read that with me aloud? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, like that goat, takes my sins away. But understand this, okay? Chata means not only does he take away my sins, but it actually means he takes away the sin. Jesus actually becomes the sin. So what happens is our identity is removed from our sin and his identity is placed on my sin. So my sin now becomes his sin. I don't have that identity anymore. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be the sin for us, the chata for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is pretty powerful Say it with me. Praise God. Now let's drill down on that a little bit. Every time you and I sit there and we live out that label and we think of ourselves as whatever you want to attach, whatever your sin issue is, whatever your past issue is, every time I do that, I am committing identity theft. I'm labeling myself something that Jesus took from me and became for me. So when I think of myself as that drunkard, I think of myself as that loser or that failure or that liar or that gossip or whatever it is, that's identity theft. I'm taking something that was put on Jesus. When I ought to be accepting my new identity, my new identity is I am the righteousness of God. So say this with me. Just simply say, I am the righteousness of God. One, two, three. I am righteousness of God. That's harder to say, isn't it? That's a lot harder to say. Someone's like, you don't want to say it. Why is it you don't want to say it? Because you know yourself, right? You know what you did this morning. You know what you did last night. You know what you did five years ago. How can I say I am the righteousness of God? You know what your problem is? What my problem is? We're saying that thinking of our own righteousness. The Bible says my righteousness is as filthy rags. We're not talking about your righteousness. This is the righteousness of God, which was imputed to you because of what Jesus did for you. And you have nothing to do with it. Isn't that wild? It's just, it's what God does for us. And that's why, that's why we got to be careful we don't get chummy with sin again. 
You know, in the Old Testament, they made all these offerings. They made all these sacrifices over and over again. Why? Because God wanted them to understand he's a holy God. They're an unholy people. He wanted them to take sin seriously because sin is so evil, it destroys our lives. And sometimes I'm a little worried that in our modern days, we're so comfortable with grace. What Christ did for us that it becomes, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it becomes cheap grace. And then we get casual with sin. I don't know if you ever read this book that we're going to put up on the screen called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. If you haven't read it for a while, maybe pull it out, read some sections of it. He talks about cheap grace. Grace is not cheap. What God did to make us inhabitable by his spirit is I can't even describe that. That Jesus would become the sin? That Jesus would die and take away the sin? That he would take on my identity so I can have his identity? That God would perpetually cover all my sins for eternity? That's not cheap grace. It's costly grace. And so I just want to challenge you as I've been challenged recently. God's kind of pointed some things out in my life. It's like, why are you comfortable with that? How can you watch that? How can you listen to that? How can you just live with that? Look what I did for you. Look what I did for the world. Tamid, chata. Hey, I want you to know something. I am the righteousness of God. And I just, I need to learn to live into that. And I want to challenge you to live into it too. It'd be a healthy exercise if you got up every day and looked in the mirror and just said to yourself, before all the negative thoughts start coming in your brain about yourself and what people said, wouldn't it be great just to look at yourself, no matter what you said, no matter what you've done, and just say, I am the righteousness of God. And then went out and said, Lord, let your righteousness start coming through my actions and my, my speech and my, my thought life. And just every day, they put a little poster up, I am the righteousness of God. A little card, I am the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. And move into that. Move into that. But, you know, when you have surgery done, they take out a mass, tumor, sore, whatever it is. It oftentimes leads, leaves a scar, Right? And I guess in some ways people look at their scars and they're actually thankful for them because it reminds them something's been taken away and, and it's gone. But nobody loves a scar. We don't like scars. And yet the truth is all of us have scars and the scar is called shame and guilt and regret. And so a lot of Christians walk around scarred and, and their scars are continually like staring them in the face. They're always thinking about how guilty they are. They're always thinking about how ashamed they are of what they've done. It's like that. It just hangs on them and it robs them of joy. Maybe you have that in your life. You'd be surprised how many of us at Wooddale have a really good front on the outside and we act like we've got the joy of the Lord and we know how to speak Christianese. You know how to speak Christianese? Praise God, hallelujah, amen. On it goes. But deep down inside, oh my goodness, we're riddled with guilt and riddled with shame. Riddled with regret. That 
brings us to the third word. It's pronounced different than it looks, but here it is. Hashem. Hashem. Say it with me. Hashem. One more time. Hashem. What does Hashem mean? By the way, in, in what, what English word does it look like? Hashem. Jesus became my Hashem, so I would not have to be ashamed. What does Hashem mean? Hashem is the word that's used for the guilt offering. If you read the chapter of uh, Isaiah, chapter 53, later on your own, you'll see it's a prophetic picture of Jesus who comes to take away the sins of the world, who takes on all the ugliness of our sins and dies our death for us. But there's one verse in particular there, verse 10, I just want to focus on for just a moment. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an Hashem for sin, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Is the final line of that verse, if you want to put it up. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So it's talking about the fact that Jesus becomes, becomes my guilt offering. But just like, just like the word chata, he becomes the sin. Listen, he becomes the guilt. He becomes the shame. He becomes the regret. So there's no need for you to have guilt and shame and regret in your life. It has been all laid on Jesus. He's become the guilt. He's become the shame. He's become the regret. No wonder it says that Jesus had to say to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No wonder the father turned his back on the son because he took on our identity, our sin identity, and took on our guilt, shame, and regret. But while the father must turn his eyes away from the son, we turn and look at the son because he's taken our ugliness away, so to speak. And he's, the power of his spirit has imputed into us his guiltlessness, his shamelessness. There's no regret. I'm righteous in him. The only reason we could possibly have for walking around and maintaining guilt and shame and regret in our lives as believers is, number one, we somehow sadistically enjoy it. And I oftentimes think of what Jesus said to the man who was lame by the pool. Remember he said to him, he asked him, do you want to be made well? I've always thought that's a strange question. But as I've gotten older in life and, and have dealt with life, I realize that sometimes we don't want to be made well. We want to kind of stay in our misery. We want to stay in our guilt and our shame because it makes us feel like we have an excuse to live. It's a strange psychological thing. It's like that becomes our excuse for our lives. It becomes our excuse for not doing better. It becomes our excuse for, you know, the continuing mistakes and sins that we make. It's a bizarre way to live. I've been free from it, but I don't want to let it go. It's how we get people to feel sorry for us. Let it go. The only other reason why I would hang on to guilt and shame and regret in my life would be because somebody keeps telling me about how shameful I am and keeps telling me about how guilty I am. But here's the good news. When you and I stand in eternity, we are not going to stand in front of each other as our judges. We're going to stand before God as our judge. And I'd rather stand before God as my judge than you. And you'd rather stand before God as your judge than me. Because he's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. 
It's a bad news world, but man, this is good news. Let's say it. Praise God. Now, do you believe that? Do you own what we've just said? Are you living in it? Are you moving into it? Are you letting it embrace your life? Or is your life being embraced by it? There's so much to live out of that God has done for us. So much has to do with how we think. So I imagine there might be someone here today who's, who's been listening to this whole thing or watching us online, you've been listening to this whole thing, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've never really given my life to God before. I kind of been standing back looking in, and I just figured God wouldn't want anything to do with me. But after hearing this, what would keep you from turning your life over to him? And I'm not going to lead you in some short little prayer to surrender your life to Jesus today and become born again. I just think it's so much more serious that we need to have a conversation about it so you really understand what that means. And so one of the unique ways we offer you is to text in the name of Jesus to the number that you see on the screen. A pastor will, will respond to you, will get together with you, and will help you talk it through, understand what it means, try to answer your questions so you can indeed experience what it means to be born again. So text us today, tomorrow, text us. But I'm wondering how many of us as believers have gotten really comfortable with sin in our life. And we need to ask God to wash us. We, we've taken that beautiful righteousness of God like, like brand new clothes and we slapped dirt on it. And we, we just need to wash it out by saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I got this dirty, forgive me. I confess. The Bible says he, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I have one more question to ask you. In order to do this, I want to make this a little bit more personal. So I'd like to ask you just bow your heads and close your eyes where you are. And the question I want to ask you is, are you walking around, are you walking around with a bunch of guilt and shame and regret in your life? Have you come to believe the lie that God can't clean your life up? You heard the truth today. Now it is time to let the Lord deliver you from the lies that you've been hearing and listening to. And if that's you, I want to pray over you right now. And I want to invite you to just Surrender the guilt, the shame, the regret. Surrender that thing that you said and did. Let it go. Father in heaven, I pray for those of us who may be harboring within our depths of our souls a sin committed in the past, one that we've sought forgiveness for over and over and over again, but we just, for whatever reason, Lord, have come to believe that you, you can't forgive us for it. Maybe it's because somebody else won't forgive us for it. So we harbor guilt and shame and regret. It's destroying our lives, Lord. We're a mess inside. In the name of Jesus, our Tamid, our Chata, our Hashem, I pray, deliver that person. Cast out the guilt, the shame, the regret. And help them to own, Lord, own their new identity. They have been made the righteousness of God. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and stay a couple extra minutes and sing this song.